a perfect gentleman. The long, long walk across La Rioja has left a certain sensitivity which I will not honor with the word pain. From long habit I ignore this, and instead I collect my thoughts. I am in an albergue in Nahera, sharing a room with several others, and the earliest dim rays of the gathering dawn come through the window. I am not the first one awake. Maurice, an amiable French-Canadian befriended on the road yesterday, is already up, collecting his things in the dimness, and quietly stuffing his backpack. Others in the room are still sleeping, so he tells me in a quiet voice that he will look for me farther down the road. Such meetings and partings and meeting again are commonplace, one of the pleasures of the Camino, and I fully expect to see him at least once more, perhaps in Burgos, but certainly before Santiago. Packing my own things later, I notice that Maurice, having washed his socks the night before and left them drying on the end rail of his bed, has forgotten them. So I put them in my own pack with the idea that I will return these for him when we meet farther on. He will surely need them. Like all pilgrims, he travels light, carrying only the essentials, and perhaps only one other pair. A small café down the narrow street is open early. A simple breakfast of coffee and bread sets me up for the day, and soon I am on the road. I leave Nahera with the idea of staying the night in Granyon. The old church of St. John the Baptist has made space in a chapel where pilgrims may sleep on the floor, but arriving in the afternoon, I find there is no place left for me. So I go on to Redesilla, but again there is no empty bed, so I keep on walking over 25 miles this very long day. But I must stop more often to rest, so the evening is closing in as I arrive in Via Mayor del Rio. And by now I am spent, and the ache in my ankle grows insistent, will not be ignored. The village is little more than a cluster of buildings at a country crossroads. But I cannot find the albergue at first, because it is set back far from the road with no sign to guide the way. And besides, I am stupid with fatigue. I ask directions of a small boy who has probably heard the same question in clumsy Spanish many times. He answers politely, but he also takes me by the hand and leads me across the road, and he points with his finger, and then waits to be sure I go the right way. Clearly, I'm showing very little wit. Arriving at last, I get the last remaining bed, an upper bunk, in a small room which I share with three others, a Frenchman, a Belgian, and an Italian. And while none of us is young, it seems I'm the oldest. In pilgrim albergues, there are often anywhere from 20 to 50 people sharing a large room. And in any group so numerous and miscellaneous, one may remain anonymous. But a small room with only four people is different. We must necessarily recognize each other. It is not an easy thing for four complete strangers to make this temporary association, but I enjoy these meetings. In spite of my exhaustion, I am glad to meet them and share greetings and first names. The three others have already determined that French is the one language they all share to some degree. The Frenchman's name is Georges, and he is very concerned to see me in such distress, and he uses exquisitely polite language to ask if I know any French, and I answer, yes, I can speak and understand some. He hears my pronunciation and, I think, estimates very accurately how well I understand, and he replies in kind. The Belgian's French is very good, as one would expect, and the Italian's less so, and I suppose I fall in between. 
But Georges is so careful in helping each of us understand each other, and he makes everyone feel at ease, and he carries on like this during the dinner we all share later that evening. It is a simple but plentiful meal, a vegetable soup with pasta and a rich broth served with bread and red wine, and we enjoy it all the more for having waited. During the meal, George keeps up the conversation with questions which were in no way intrusive, simply expressing interest in his companions and their experience on the Camino. He is so completely charming, really excellent company. He is tall like my son Dave, and his posture is straight and imposing, and this, together with his clear way of speaking, brings to mind a stray random line from Much Ado, Benedict, describing his friend Claudio, he was wont to speak straight and to the purpose like an honest man and a soldier. I ask my wandering imagination, is Georges perhaps the old image of an hussar, a cuirassier, or remembering the painting Dave and I saw some years before in Paris, perhaps Jericho's chasseur? He has an almost military bearing, but then I think this is simply what another age would have called good breeding, which also explains his solicitude for others. In French, there is an expression, le parfait gentilhomme, a perfect gentleman in the old world sense. This describes Georges, and in the present age, we do not see it often enough. During the night, the discomfort wakes me, and I have to get up. I try to be very quiet, but I hear the others stir. I see Georges in the morning before he leaves, and he asks me if I slept well, and I reply honestly that I did not and I hope I did not wake him. Georges says that he, too, did not sleep well, but he goes on to say that our dinner was later than what he was used to, that in France one has dinner earlier than in Spain, and the late dinner made his sleep uneasy. But I understand that with his subtle courtesy he wants to reassure me that I did not disturb his sleep with my movements, that I should not concern myself at all. It is so very well done. Georges, le parfait gentilhomme, stays in my mind as I start walking into the new day. I will also look for him farther down the road, and perhaps I will meet him again in some other small village along the way, but surely before Santiago. Atonement. Chaucer gave pilgrims a bad name. He did not intend this, but there it is. On the best of days, I'm the worst of scholars. But based on what little I know, I suppose Chaucer used the pilgrimage to Canterbury as a device to gather together a diverse but representative group of 14th century English men and women, high-born and low, various orders of clergy, people with money and those without, diverse saints and sinners, and each told a story along the pilgrimage road to Canterbury. Of these pilgrims, a particular few stand out in the memory of high school or college students, who once had Chaucer in their curriculum, and the ones remembered were not the best of the lot. It's worth noting that Chaucer gave the first story to The Knight, a perfect Christian gentleman, sans peur et sans reproche. But few students today remember him. Some days ago, I mentioned The Squire's Tale and The Princess of Tartary with her magic ring, and this is my favorite Chaucer tale. But I say this now in the latter years of my life. As a high school boy, I was like any high school boy, and it was the body ribald Miller's tale that captured my attention. And, of course, the wife of Bath, with her five husbands, each with a different fate, 
all dead, and none remembered with esteem, will give a fellow of any age much to think about. This comes to mind because a few days ago I walked with James, a pleasant Anglo-Irishman near my age, whom I've seen several times these many days, and he mentioned that he had Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in his backpack. I answered that few could say the same, but as it happened I had an e-book version on my small laptop. And so we walked along, talking of our favorite parts of Chaucer, or at least the parts one is willing to admit liking in the company of a new acquaintance. But really, who went on pilgrimage long ago, and who goes today? I'm certain the motives were many over the ages, but the motives today are, I believe, very different from a thousand years ago, which will surprise no one. Today's pilgrims may have religious reasons, and I know that James went to the late Mass at the Burgos Cathedral to receive the pilgrim's blessing. And many others may have spiritual reasons, which are not necessarily the same thing or even related to religion. Or some may even wish to see the many examples of Romanesque and Spanish Baroque art and architecture along the Camino. One night I shared dinner with a pilgrim from New Zealand who spoke of his wonder and delight at seeing all these works of creative genius. His enthusiasm made a little more sense when he said that he was not raised a Catholic in the old way. I look on most of these works of art and I cannot help but remember with dread the harshness of my Catholic boyhood and on seeing the magnificent spires of the Burgos Cathedral, I cannot help but wonder, did these tall spires once overlook an auto de fe? Or did this great plaza ever echo the last cries of a burning heretic? Of course, today's pilgrim likely has more than one motivation, and adventure or physical challenge may be one of them. The challenge grows more acute with every passing day, for many pilgrims speak of aches and ailments, blisters and swollen tendons and other afflictions, and I am among them, slowed down but not a bit discouraged. But imagine what it must have been like in the Middle Ages when pilgrims set out on the road to Santiago or Rome or Jerusalem and there were few places to stay and predatory bandits lay in wait. The Knights Templar offered some protection to the pilgrims and all the weak and afflicted, but they could not be everywhere. And yet some pilgrims who fell victim on the road and never finished the journey may have thought this was their just and ordained fate. For there were so many who set out on the road through no wish of their own, but as a punishment, an act of penance imposed by a priest or bishop or other clerical authority who commanded them to go on pilgrimage to atone for some particular sin, mortal or venial, real or imagined. But some sins were indeed very mortal, and called for extraordinary penance. In December of 1170, Henry II, King of England and ruler of Aquitaine, and a good deal more of Western Europe, and not the most patient of men, gave voice to his anger at Thomas Becket. Becket was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Henry and Becket, once close in friendship, but now grown bitter in enmity, had quarreled for years over matters of clerical authority, benefit of clergy, sanctuary, and ecclesiastical jurisdiction. Versions of the event differ, but Henry is said to have expressed himself in front of many of his retainers, saying something like, Am I surrounded by drones? Who will not rid me of this meddlesome priest? The retainers present included Sir Hugh de Morville and three other knights, who thought they would please the king by acting on these words, for they rode to Canterbury, 
where they found Beckett saying mass, and they drew their swords right there in the cathedral and stabbed him again and again. In one recounting of the scene, which took place in front of many witnesses, the last cut was straight through Beckett's skull. It was the great crime of the age, and Sir Hugh atoned for it for the rest of his life. He first tried to buy forgiveness by building a church in Lincolnshire. How many churches crumbling away in Europe today owe their provenance to some act of contrition? But the Pope was unforgiving, which is to say, not very Christian, and the Pope excommunicated Sir Hugh. This led to his first pilgrimage to Rome, where he begged the Pope's forgiveness. The Pope again was not impressed and gave him another penance. He must go on another pilgrimage, this time to Jerusalem, and serve with the Knights Templar for fourteen years, and then take on the hair shirt, go barefoot, and visit all the holy places and walk in the footsteps of Jesus until death took him. Christian legend says Sir Hugh died in 1202, after thirty years of repentance, and was buried beneath the portico of the Templar's church in Jerusalem now the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Someday, if I may ever walk to Jerusalem, I will stand in the portico of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, above the bones of Sir Hugh, and ask, did he ever find forgiveness? And in this moment I ask, do any of us? For while no one among us will ever draw a sword to slay a saint, we all have those things for which we wish forgiveness, flaws, failings, friendships fallen away. And in a kinder world, we would not have to go on pilgrimage to find it. The High Plateau There is a series of Camino towns, each a day's walk apart, which are much of a muchness. Hornios, Castro Jerez, Foromista, Carion del Condes, Sahun and beyond, where the sky is high and wide and infinite, and the fields of grain are vast enough to feed a whole country, which in fact they do. It's a different kind of beauty, with a sameness that makes each day very like the one before, and all equally spectacular. Along the way there are many small cairns, made from stones cleared from the fields, and the stones are piled one upon another, sometimes to a surprising height, and I wonder that the strong wind does not blow them down. Does each stone like the stones in my pocket, carry the weight of a wish. This is the high plateau west of Burgos, in the land once called Castile. The countryside is very much what I see when I imagine Quixote with his Rocinante, both man and horse, with a halting step and a slight limp, worn down by life and past their prime, but their hearts overflowing with hopes and dreams, and never a thought of surrender. Whatever age the pilgrim might be, there are at least a few others on the road who share with me something like Quixote's years. Although I walk alone, I am open to meeting anyone and keeping company for as long as we keep the same pace. One of these pilgrims shares with me something of his life, the kind of revelation I will hear more than once along this road. Hans Josef is a German man of my age, and we first meet in a village where we have both stopped at the fountain to fill our water bottles, and then we continue on our way together. We stop to rest in Castro Jerez and share lunch at midday, sitting on a bench in the plaza. The air is chilly, but we bask in the noontime sun. He starts to tell me something of his life in Dusseldorf, and how he retired from a long career 
in a very large corporation. He gave his life to his company and rose to an important place in management and then was cast aside after a merger, pushed out the door as someone redundant. As he speaks, he looks off into the distance as if he were not actually talking to me but instead sharing his thoughts with the air because it's too painful to look at another person and at the same time speak of the terrible experience of being called out as an unnecessary man after a lifetime of work. And he speaks of the pain of telling his wife and children. And I ask myself, we met only a short while before, so how can these thoughts come out like this? But I just listen. Later, Hans Joseph tells me that since his university days he has been interested in church architecture, and now he is making this journey to look at all these monuments to the spirit built long ago along this very special road. But I have the strong impression that the study of architecture is only a pretext for the journey, and the true purpose is to recover from a terrible wound. The road today and tomorrow's road, too, is straight, with little change in elevation as the miles roll on across the fields of grain. Some pilgrims don't care for this stretch of several days, but I can see why it appeals to many others. The land has a spiritual quality, and here and there the road will rise very gradually, a hundred feet or so, and then the pilgrim can look ahead and behind and see a long way, and if, as happened once today, there is not a soul in sight, the pilgrim may feel terribly alone, or he may feel closer to whatever God he carries in his heart, but he will certainly feel something. Another day, a few hours west of Fromista, it starts to rain, so I put on my poncho. After some time, the rain lets up as I come to a farmhouse beside the road. The owner has set up a small cafe before his house, and, and several pilgrims have stopped for coffee or whatever else he may have for sale. I've seen such places now and again, a kind of impromptu commerce, which, I easily suppose, gives the farmers some added income, very, li very likely off the books. And why not? After a cup of coffee, I step into the yard to greet the donkey gauge grazing there. She is a lovely creature with her dark brown coat and lustrous eyes and very fine ears pointing up to the sky in exclamation. And I am very pleased to see her approach me. She is in no way shy to my touch, and I run my hand down her broad neck, feeling the firm, strong muscles marveling at her good nature. She nudges me gently, so that I have the notion that she has somehow taken a liking to me and is showing a kind of affection. But then I notice she keeps nudging the same place, the pocket of my jacket under my poncho. I put my hand there, and suddenly the mystery becomes clear, for in my pocket is a plump, sweet orange, the best of Valencia. I take the orange from my pocket and hold it out to her. With no hesitation, she takes the orange with her mouth, and for the briefest moment I feel her soft lips on my palm, and something like a caress. And then she turns away with her prize. Well, I think, so much for affection. And not for the first or last time. I laugh at myself. Late in the morning I stop in a village, village to buy fruit and bread, which I will eat as I walk along, saving a crust for any bird who may trust my generosity. In the shop I point to a loaf, but the baker shakes his head and chooses another. He says something I can't quite understand, but I believe I catch something about energy. And it seems this darker loaf is, in his judgment, better nourishment for a fellow walking a long road. I thank him, and I walk out. 
but before I could go a few steps, he calls out to me again, and I see that he is holding out for me his gift of a plantain. I thank him again, but he waves this aside and wishes me buen camino. Again and again, I find such kindness along the way. Farther down the road, enjoying the sweetness of his gift, I wonder, he must see hundreds of pilgrims walking by his shop every day, and I doubt he gives a plantain to everyone. So did I somehow stand out from the others? Certainly I may appear older than the average pilgrim passing by, and I must confess I now have a halting step and a slight limp. But do I really look worn down by life and past my prime? Is it possible he sees me and thinks of Quixote? Well, if so, then he cannot see everything. He cannot see the heart within, a heart that overflows with hopes and dreams, a heart with no thought of surrender.